0: We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Leading and motivating staff is a difficult job for every leader, especially the CEO or executive director of an organization. Staff communication, staff conflict, and staff competition are all very real issues that every leader has to navigate through as they seek to move their organization towards a common mission. Now, could you imagine having two staff members literally working side by side who are from rival gangs. Not only are these two former gang members working side by side, elbow to elbow, but they're attempting to work together to create quality products. Can you imagine what kind of potential conflict and competition this would create? This is exactly the scenario that my guest on the show today faces every day at his organization. My guest is Thomas Bozo. He is the first ever CEO of Homeboy Industries, a large nonprofit serving in Los Angeles, California, that helps former gang members to redirect their lives and become contributing members of their community. Thomas also has a new book coming out entitled The Homeboy Way A Radical Approach to Business and Life. And in it, he outlines how he went from generating billion dollar revenues and making million dollar profits to a voluntary, unpaid CEO of a nonprofit built on compassion, empathy, And social justice. Now, I also want to give a quick uh, reminder. If you like this show, if you're gaining helpful insights from my guests, let me know. Uh, Write a review, even. Reviews actually help get the word out about this podcast to even more leaders just like you. And it's also been really fun to have a growing international audience. In fact, if you're a regular listener outside of the US or Canada, let me know. Uh, Drop me a line. I would love to find out how your work is going in your home country. All right, enough of an intro. Enjoy today's show. Well, thanks for being on the show today, Thomas. There are several things I look forward to talking with you about. But first of all, for my listeners, if you have not heard of Homeboy Industries, you're in for a real treat. They are not only the premier nonprofit working with former gang members, they are the largest gang rehabilitation and reentry program in the world. Father Greg Boyle is the one who founded this organization and he's an incredibly inspiring person. So I encourage you to check out Father Greg Boyle and Thomas, again, I'm really glad to have you on the show. Tell us real quick, give us that three-minute quick overview story of Homeboy Industries. How did it start and what is your mission? Thanks, Rob. Happy to be here with you. So Homeboy Industries started over
1: 30 years ago. As you mentioned, Father Greg Boyle, our founder, is a Jesuit priest. And his uh, first station as a priest was at Dolores Mission, which is the poorest parish within the whole archdiocese of Los Angeles. And this is back in the late 80s and early 90s. He was there, epicenter of gang violence at that time in L.A. County, you know, in in that little uh, parish, there was probably six or seven different gangs. Uh, What Greg saw was these young men just sort of in gang life, life of crime, life of violence. And and he wanted to come up with a way of, of helping them. And he hit upon this simple notion that if there's purposeful activity, if they have a job where they have enough money for food and shelter, they're not going to turn to the gangs for food and shelter, earn the money for food and shelter. And so from that notion and and working to get these young men out of of gang life, uh, started Homeboy Industries and now fast forward 34 years later, we're we're a large nonprofit. We're a $30 million nonprofit, which means we raise $30 million and spend $30 million and, and we help over 8,000 people each year, they come through our doors, they're looking to get out of gang life, looking for some type of service, looking for some type of way of moving their life forward. And so we now have social enterprise businesses. We no longer just a jobs program, but we have our own businesses. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit of time. But essentially Homeboy Industries helps people heal from the trauma they've experienced as a young person. Clearly Homeboy started as a jobs program, you could say. But over time, what Greg learned was They need foundational healing. They've been victims of complex trauma. And we provide all those services to help them get through that transformation process.
0: No, that's fantastic. And again, for my listeners, uh, so really Homeboy Industries is committed to helping former gang members to redirect their lives really and become contributing members of the community. You've already mentioned a couple of those things. What would you say, as you've been there, has been the most important program or services, or maybe it's a collection. Maybe it's the holistic approach you have, but why has it been so successful? Because you're not the only one trying to do work among former gang members. What has been the secret sauce, so to speak, about homeboy industries? Yeah, I'm glad you used that last
1: phrase, uh, secret sauce, because as a, as a corp- former corporate guy who's now in that homeboy industries, you always look to see in any organization, what is the sh- secret sauce and what makes it work? Because there are plenty of organizations out there who have programs and provide services. Now, that being said, we do reentry services under one roof, uh, what it takes to get someone to re in society. People voluntarily come to us. We're not court mandated. We don't even recruit people. Too many people come to us looking for help and we can actually help along the way. But in essence, how we help people change their life, the secret sauce is the community that sits within homeboy Industries. It's a community of kinship and caring and compassion. And so simply said, People walk through our doors, doesn't matter the color of their skin, the tattoos on their face, the gang they're with, the, the felon that they had, we're going to come in and accept them, and we're going to love them and form a first-time relationship with them that they've had in their life, and they see us as a family. And it's having, it's being in that sanctuary of Homeboy that really allows people
0: to heal from their trauma. That's excellent. And you are, now I understand, the first ever CEO of Homeboy Industries. Now, Back in 2012, I understand you left a lucrative career in a corporate America job, and you kind of mentioned that already, because you were convinced there had to be a better way to define success. And I thought that was really interesting. What led you, though, specifically to Homeboy? I mean, there's a lot of good nonprofits out there, right? What drew you specifically to Homeboy Industries for you to make this switch from a lucrative career in the corporate world? Yeah, so sure. So
1: I was 26 years as a corporate executive. My last stop, I led a two billion dollar set of businesses. So a lot of employees, very sizable. But you know, in in leading that, I was 26 years into that corporate sector. I understood the rules of the, of the game. I knew how to succeed. I knew how to lead organizations. You know, it's about having the right people in place and the strategy and tactics, right? But I also kind of felt like, wow, at the end of the day, most business, nearly all businesses in our capitalist society, I like say I'm a committed capitalist. They're all it's like shareholder value is an important concept. And I think it gets that shareholder value goal is too highly weighed versus the employees. And so I've always thought about how can we run a business where employees are more front and center, not just in a sort of a way of you kind of give good benefits and good pay, but they're part equity owners. They're they as a, doing well for your employees is as important as doing well for your shareholders. Most times, business can do balance it, but there's always that rub somewhere along the line that one aspect wins out over the other. And so, you know, corporate executive, number of years, you know, those jobs have a certain shelf life. It, it, deep down, I kind of knew I wanted to do something different. And so I, I left the, the, my corporate role sort of on this sort of what's figuring out what's my next chapter. And Along the way, a friend of mine who's on the board of Salvation Army with me, who's on the board of Homeboy, he invited me down to the Homegirl Cafe to have lunch. Uh, now nine and a half years ago, and he asked me to get involved. And for me, it's like, you know, it's like I was really intrigued sitting there eating lunch, picking my head up, looking at the folks, the women of the cafe who were serving us, re- recognizing that they're former gang members, former felons. And I'm thinking to myself, I would have never hired any of those folks back in my corporate life. And yet here are these folks working hard, they're happy in their jobs, there's a, there's a dignity to the work of what they're doing. And so when my friend Victor asked me to get involved, I I didn't want to be a board member. I've done that plenty of times. I thought, all right, I'm a guy with some business experience and success. Let me see if I can roll up my sleeves and help out in a different way. And so I started volunteering and helping them in the social enterprise businesses. And a couple months later, Father Greg asked me to be the first CEO of Homeboy. and, And I thought, at that time, what do I know about nonprofits? But I knew I wanted to help and that Couldn't pass up the chance to be in Father Greg's orbit for a little bit of time. So I said yes. So it's been one of the best
0: decisions I've ever made in my life. Sounds like you've not looked back and nine years later, you're Uh, loving it. And now again, you've got a book coming out, which we're going to talk about a little bit. Now we have had other former for-profit executives who have gone into the nonprofit world, just like you, in order to bring their business expertise and vision to maybe more of a mission driven organization like a nonprofit. Along the way, you know, you implement these strategic leadership ideas and experience that you've had in the for-profit world. And I've understood since you've taken this role, you've doubled the organization's size and impact. So I would love for you for, again, to talk through, this is a leadership podcast and I love asking leaders to help us understand their leadership journey. So walk us through this leadership journey of you coming from the outside, from the for-profit world into the nonprofit world. How did you go about building trust, casting vision, and then successfully moving this organization forward to the point where you literally doubled its size and its impact? Could you talk about that leadership journey?
1: Yeah, sure. And just as another way of frame up your question and a different uh, challenge was, was, here you had a founder who's still involved in the organization, and in my words, a living saint. And how do I, as the CEO, corporate guy coming in, kind of, I mean, Greg, Greg and I always, always have had a good relationship, but but everyone in the organization had their eyes on how they how those two
0: guys getting along and, and you know, is Tom looking to push Greg out and, that type of thing. I would love for you to talk about that because you're right. You are in a sense, even though he wasn't the CEO, he's the founder, he's the visionary, he's still there. And I would say, yeah, he's the heart and soul of Homeboy Industries. So how did you, so talk about that too. How did you navigate through establishing yourself, being confident who you were and what you're bringing to the table? But I'm sure there was a lot of questions and whisperings, uh, you know, at the water cooler about what's going on with Thomas, what's his real plan. So yeah, yeah. talk about that too. That's great.
1: Yeah, sure. I feel like I lived the charm life. I've lived the good life. I've, I've been, quote unquote, successful the way the outside world measures it, right? And so I came in the homeboy, and for my spot in my life, I was content with what I've accomplished. And so I didn't volunteer to help out a homeboy because I needed to kind of brandage my image or sort of put myself on a pedestal. So it really was this aspect of servant leadership. And I recognize saying this is I was fortunate that I can actually say I just want to be a servant leader. But looking back, I think that's luckily I got to that spot, but I think other folks can do, do that as well. So, why, why is that important? Because it wasn't my role to change homeboy industry. So, what I saw was they, homeboy helped people, men and women, get out of gang life. They're tremendously successful. Father Greg has built a team of leaders who know how to help and mentor young men and women get out of gang life. They, did, I did, they didn't need my help to improve the mission, they needed my help to. How do you run the organization? At that time there was a financial crunch coming along. You know, how do you senior staff was burnt out? You know, all the stuff that's kind of very typical of organizations, organizational development was was there to be had. And so I could bring all of my knowledge from the for-profit world into making that happen as long as I clearly respected the mission. And and my role was to sort of allow Greg to thrive in what he loves doing and, and not be so tied to the day to day. And, and allow that mission to keep on, keep on continuing. And so, so that was the philosophy. And that's an important sort of distinction to make as others are think, thinking about making that shift is that the mission's solid. It's like, how do you kind of grow everything else around it? And then I'll quickly say the last thing, we you, you can talk more about it. It's, it's really growing the team. Like in any organization, you need a great team that works for you, right? And so I've been spending a lot of time developing a team that's below me and look, that we're a sizable organization, and over half of our senior staff are former clients, and so people lived experience. And so if you're running a nonprofit organization, particularly a human services organization, you need people with lived experience to be key members of your team, and not in just in a token way, but in a way that they have meaningful
0: jobs. And so there's a, there's a lot of effort put into developing these leaders. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more. Nearly half of your staff, you're saying, are made up of people who are former clients. First of all, that's really impressive. And it's a very noble goal. I think a lot of us want to have that kind of goal, particularly when you're having a humanitarian-focused nonprofit. But I'm sure it's been really difficult. How have you navigated through these challenges?
1: Yeah. And let me, um, I want to take it from a couple angles along this way. So if you think about, like I said, our mission is strong. Our, our team knows how to help uh, people leave leave gang life <laughs> and i use this line often we you know we're blessed with so many volunteers who come along and help us and and as people and particularly donors as they call me up and ask me questions you know we don't do a lot of things well there's like a thousand things we don't do well at. we don't answer the phone as quickly we don't respond to emails as quickly your, your coffee may get sort cold you know all that may happen but you know one thing we do every day that's excellent is help is our mission helping people get a gang life right? And so if you sort of try to match up your talents with what the work you got to get done. So clearly folks with lived experience are excellent about helping people, mentor people, get out of gang. It's my job to make them better at answering emails and phone calls. And we can bring a whole bunch of support services around to make that happen. And so it's kind of trying to lining up people with their skills and put them in positions to thrive. That's number one. Number two is it takes a long-term commitment that you want to evaluate your talent, put them in the right roles, but recognize they're not going to be successful on day one. And you have to kind of keep coaching them and keep mentoring them. And we, you need to move away in this, in our case, move away from consequential responsibility, you know, you know measuring people and valuing their behaviors to sort of giving them multiple chances, teaching them how to do it. Because fundamentally, and here's, here's one of the messages I want to get across, I talk about this in the book. Why I wrote the book partly is my understanding there's there's two Americas the America of the poor, the America we all, the rest of us live in. 90% of our clients, we call them trainees, have never worked more than a month in their life. And so for society to think they can leave the jail system, prison system, and get a job, keep a job, it's kind of nutty. You have to kind of over invest, teach them how to work, teach them a full day set of skills, all those things. And thereby, you have to sort of go overboard and, and just invest and trust that they can do the job and keep mentoring them
0: along the way. We'll be right back. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I want to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. Now finally, if you want to get my monthly email update that contains more resources in addition to these episodes, it's really easy. Just go to my website at nonprofitleadershippodcast.org and simply type your email address in the top right hand box and you'll be added to our monthly email update. And this way you'll never miss any of the interviews or extra content from this show. And if you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email me. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Wow. I mean, again, a very noble goal. Love that. Okay. Now, as you move from that for-profit sector into your role as CEO for this nonprofit, that was a growing nonprofit, what was your biggest challenge? As you look back now, when you made that switch initially, maybe the first couple of years, what was your biggest challenge that you had to face and overcome?
1: I want to say that at Homeboy Industries, we're a human services organization. But under that umbrella, though, we run at that time, seven social enterprise businesses, and then we have the program side of the house and it, and it blends together nicely for, for a, tr- a good experience for our trainees, our clients, right? So early on, you had to get had to get the business managers to understand that while they're working in a mission-driven organization, they still needed to run that business like a for-profit business. That they needed to have good customer service, good product quality, managed shrinkage. The thing that was mission-related was we're going to have two to three times as much labor as a for-profit business would have because we're about providing more jobs. But everything else, they had to kind of run it in a very, quote-unquote, professional way, uh, for-profit way. And so, I mean, take that example, and that's a kind of microcosm of how to get the whole senior staff to understand that, yes, we're doing a mission, but we're here to run this organization for the long term, and it develop people. And so, you have to have more, a little bit more process, a little bit more systems in place, and understand the financial implications of the work we do. So, the challenge was getting folks to understand that and kind of live us Take us through that journey.
0: Now, very impressive. And along the way, I've learned a little bit about your organization, your leadership style. You've really focused your leadership on providing practical ways to address issues of racial and economic inequalities, which you kind of referred to just a bit ago with the two different Americas. I understand in your book, even you have 55 rules to break. So talk about that racial and economic inequalities has certainly been something we've been discussing for the last two years, right? Uh, Particularly after George Floyd's death, there's been a lot of conversation about equity and diversity and inclusion and social justice and all those things. Talk about how you've done that because you've obviously that's a daily thing you're dealing with in your organization, and your role. What are these 55 rules and how did they address these inequalities? Yeah,
1: uh, there's a lot to say here. So you're going to have to kind (laughs) of maybe shut me. I'm not going to give you all 55, but I want to give you the context. You partly mentioned the context of this. Listen, there are over 200 different gangs in the county of Los Angeles. What we're about is helping the gang member, not the gang. So we have, like one of our social enterprise businesses is a big artisan-made bread, handmade bread. We have 11 routes that go around the city of Los Angeles delivering to deliver restaurants. But we have guys on that bread table rolling dough, standing shoulder to shoulder with their gang enemy. Fundamentally, it was what Father Greg teaches us, and it's about it's hard to demonize somebody in relationship with. So we kind of not force those relationships, but we, we're we not going to allow one gang, set of guys, one gang hang over here, another hang over here. No, we're going to mingle them all together.
0: Now, guys. Well, because I pause real quick. I think, you know, when you think about leaders that have difficulties with their staff working together, having rival gangs working right next to each other is a and challenge. And if we <laughs> can do
1: it, that's my point. If we can do it, others can do it.
0: And, and gangs separate mostly by race as well.
1: And so you have to understand. So people come to Homeboy Industries looking to get out of gang life. They're tired of it. But also they're tired and angry that all their life they've been, they've been victims of racial injustice, economic injustice, system-wide injustice. They've had system people, society people shake their fingers at them and say, you're not doing this, you're not doing this. So there's a rawness as to when they come in. And we help them heal from that rawness. But fundamentally, what we're about is sort of don't demonize your enemy, but stand next to them and, and, and work with them. So that's the first part about help, helping them heal is, is not to sort of breathe life into this racial divide, but actually trying to knock down those barriers. And as cliche as it sounds, my gosh, it works every day, Homeboy Industries, it works it works so well. So some of the lessons I've learned at Homeboys, particularly as we get folks who have lived experience to be those in the management positions, is that. You know, a well and I learned this in my corporate job, a well-run company, their management team looks like in terms of diversity, like their frontline employees. And so for us, our management team needed to look like the clients and have the same type of diversity as our clients. And so, yes, so we have jobs. And so one of the rules I, I say we should break is this notion like, well, you know, we have we have to be colorblind and race neutral and making decisions about filling jobs. And I'm saying, no, knock that out. I mean, no, you have to you have to go out of your way. It's not a quota system, but yeah, it's the art. You have to kind of blend the way you look at the way people are staffing your position. Because I I see firsthand. I mean, this sounds so odd, I see firsthand as our trainees are are first in our program, and they look up and they see people who are like themselves in those management positions. I can see how they want to get there too. And the look is not just about skin color, but it's about tattoos. It's about the gang they're in. It's a, it's all that kind of variety of issues. And so part of the, you know, the notion to get rid of is, yeah, no, you, you shouldn't be colorblind in how you choose people, right? And the, the other notion we need to rid ourselves of is, well, you got to take the most experienced person and the one with the, the biggest resume. Well, not necessarily. If someone has great lived experience, but they don't have a college degree, they may be able to do a job but just as well as the guy with the college degree. And so let's not just sort of be so rigid in terms of the qualifications. So there's just two of the notions. So there's 55 I write in there. There's all bunch of this. There's business-related notions. And then there's sort of how how I've learned my own spiritual growth and how you kind of do that in your balance of your life.
0: Well, good. I'm, you gave a little teaser there about these 55 rules. And I love what you're saying, because that is very real for many people, but particularly what you're doing there in your work. Now, I mentioned before, you've got this upcoming book. It's coming out in the next couple of weeks. It's entitled The Homeboy Way, A Radical Approach to Business in life. What surprised you the most as you were writing this book? Yeah. So I wrote
1: this book early on at my time at Homeboy. It's like it was head spinning. Like there's so many, I would sit there and I would listen to how Father Greg and some of the leaders would help an individual person. And as I'm listening to the diagnostic of the situation. I'm thinking, well, what would I do? Well, in the end, most of the times they didn't do what I would have done in their way work. So I'm thinking, wow, I've learned, you know, just pay attention. You can learn a lot along the way. And so I've started writing the book thinking that if I ever was to go back into the for-profit world, what lessons would I bring? And so there are plenty of those lessons in the book. But as I'm writing, I'm recognizing that I have learned so much, not just from Father Greg, but from the homeboys and homegirls themselves and how authentic they are, how real they are with the pain they've experienced, but how they've positively moved their life forward. And so that's part of what I'm trying to sort of see, talk through. And then the other thing I've learned was my own spiritual You know, in the corporate world, you can't talk about God and your faith. And it's like, you just know not to say those things, right? At homeboy, clearly people people definitely understand. I've learned from Father Greg, something that we all know, but I mean, it got reinforced. God is too busy loving us to be judging us and not to be worried about being judged. And that, message comes through loud and clear homeboy and you can see how people have changed via their own spirituality so that's enabled me to start speaking more about my own views and on my own faith journey the third aspect of what i've learned is how hard it is to be poor in america and so many items are stacked up against people they come out of jail system with with debt they can't rent a place they can't live in a safe neighborhood they can't get a job. Are, and our folks are trying to do the right thing, but so many times they get pulled back in because everything's stacked up against them. And I'm saying, well, wait a minute. This Homeboy way is a way of helping people, and other organizations should follow how we're helping people as well.
0: No, it's very uh, impressive what you're doing. And in the book, again, going back to that, you provide a path for personal and business-driven leadership. You've already given us a couple of teasers. Could you also give us a bit of a teaser on this? What are some of the key principles that you're wanting the readers of this book to get, particularly when it comes to that path of personal and business-driven leadership? Let me
1: say it this way. I have found at my my time at Homeboy, I feel so fortunate to be here. I have found a better balance in my life. And uh, you know, I was a committed, driven corporate executive And have nobody really regrets that about that, but but not realizing though that there's a drive for foundational joy. If you can find joy in life, helping other people, you can do that while you're doing your corporate job. And as you're working with people in your shop and in your department, it's about relationships. It's not just about judging behavior. It's about getting deeper into those relationships. And so, my one of the messages is: How do you find balance in your life between your personal beliefs? And how how that plays out in your work life, and making sure it's it's not separate.
0: Boy, that's so important. Uh, that is a struggle, I think particularly for some reason, it's a hazard. I feel like in nonprofit work. I think there's a sense of, well, the mission is so important. It's so compelling. You almost have to sacrifice your own self-boundaries and your own health sometimes, right? To serve those needs, particularly again, with the work you're doing, those needs are overwhelming sometimes. And so good for you to pass those on to the readers, as well as the people that you're leading there. All right. Well, a quote that I wanted to share with you and with the listeners is from your founder, Greg Boyle, and we've mentioned him many times. He has this really, really powerful quote, but I want to unpack a little bit. He says this, we imagine a world without prisons, and then we try to create that world. Now that is a vision statement. Boy, that is a powerful, very lofty vision and very bold vision of what he's after and what Homeboy Industry is about. Now I'll play devil's advocate a little bit. Is this realistic? How does this vision impact your leadership when it comes day in and day out? Uh, It's a quite interesting question. And let me say
1: First off, I want to take a higher level view of it. Father Greg is an amazing person. As I said before, I think he's a living saint. He is, how he writes, how he speaks, he's authentic. That is what he's like behind closed doors, just talking one-on-one with him. And so these beliefs that, you know, as, as you put in that one of those quotes, that's how, he, that's how he goes about life. That's how he goes about uh, helping people. And so, so I just want to make that comment. And maybe I'm not so sure about the way you asked your question. Are, we, are you, is your question about, do we believe in prisons or do we believe, how do we sort of move forward that, have this concept of no prisons? Because
0: Yeah. Maybe just the idea that when you first write again, it's very lofty, very inspirational. We all would love that, you know, vision, but you've got this day in and day out job where you're working with gang members that are in and out of prison all the time. How do you balance that? It probably is not going to happen. We're going to have a world without prisons, but how do you continue to move forward and not get discouraged when you're trying to create this world where this um, you know, may never happen in your lifetime? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense. So I mean, at home boy, I mean, what I've come to learn from Greg and the team is, you know, these men and women, they get jumped to the gangs at a young age. So they are vic- they are all victims of complex trauma. And so it's understandable that then they go off and join a gang and then they go off and create trauma and now they're coming full circle. And so to really help somebody not go back into prison, not recidivate back into the prison system, you got to help them heal from their pain and heal and, and transform that pain into so that they can become more stable. And Greg has another way of saying, you know, an educated ex-felon, you, you, you can go to high school or college. Well, he still may recidivate back into prison, right? Or, or someone who has job skills, they may still recidivate, but someone who's resilient and can, can take on life's burdens, they're not going to go back to the jail system. And so our point is, Greg's point, and our point is, we're here to help the person who's in front of us today, help them heal from the pain, and that everything will work out well after that. It is hard. I want to touch on something else. It is hard work that our team does. We are dealing with serious violent offenders we're helping them change their life. Their lives have been awful. We're helping them change their life, and we are very successful. You know, UCLA has done a study, an independently funded study. We only have a thirty percent recidivism rate of people going back into the jail system. That's remarkable.
0: Wow, that's really good. Right versus a statewide average
1: of seventy yeah, percent. So you've we're cut over that over less less
0: than half yeah. of that. That's impressive. Less than
1: half. Right, right, and so that's like, and so to be part of someone's transformation is so special, and that's why we're all here. But the flip side is, quote-unquote, we have 30% fail rate, quote-unquote, right? It's heartbreaking when you see you, you haven't been able to reach somebody. Heartbreaking to the team. And so, you know, it's and that's where it takes resilience, resilience of the staff to kind of keep moving them forward by helping that one person. It's the concept of helping one person at a time. Because if you think you're going to kind of move all society forward, that's not happening. But the one person at a time is, is where our people get centered on
0: that's a great segue in this next question. You know, you've worked with a lot of leaders over the years with your experience and you've grown in your life as a leader. What are the key characteristics of leaders that will be able to sustain effective leadership over a long period of time? Because you're right, leadership is hard. Whether you're doing a great nonprofit work like you're doing or in the for-profit world, leadership is just difficult. So what separates effective leaders who prevail from those who fade away?
1: Yeah, I've done I've some thinking about this. And, and right, I've had fortunate work with a number of great leaders uh, along the way. And, and you know we all read the books, and we all study. And I get back to this, what I was saying about Greg authenticity. And when your personal values line up with sort of what you're trying to get done in your, in your business or in your organization and what that mission is, you can be very authentic and keep moving it forward. It's when there's like a disconnect between your personal values and the mission of your organization, whether that disconnect is caused by a shareholder revolt or earnings, having quarterly earnings every every 90 days or some other trauma that's happening, that then you're kind of now having to choose between your own internal values and what the mission is and what you're trying to accomplish. Folks are smart folks and people intuitively understand that that person now is a little bit more inauthentic. That's when everything breaks down.
0: No, very interesting. I think that's a great uh, answer to that. Okay, personally speaking, I always like asking my guests this question. What do you do to keep yourself sharp as a leader? What books do you read, perhaps? What resources do you go to that have most impacted your ongoing leadership growth? I've never been asked that question. So I would would say there's two
1: phrases. All throughout my career, I've been fortunate in my corporate career to be viewed as somebody who's an up-and-coming leader. So they've always put a lot of energy into into Sending me to schools here and having an executive coach there. And what I take from all that is the willingness to learn is not to think you've made it, right? Just because you're successful at 30 or 35 or 50, I mean, you still got to keep on learning, right? And so it's, it's the willingness to learning. I've become more of an avid reader, so I do a lot of reading along the way, reading historical books, historical fiction. I'm not a big leadership reader. I, I like reading about leaders though, uh, along the line. And I like seeing what's made them successful and what, what where their failures are. But a key aspect of all that is listening, sitting with people and just listening to their stories and what makes them successful, what their concerns are. And that's, you know, you can pick up how you kind of run things just by having a, a open ears, open eyes.
0: Listening, what an incredibly important skill! Uh, you're not the first one uh, on our show to talk about that as such a critical leadership skill, but you don't see a lot of books out there written about listening as a leader. You know, so I appreciate you pointing that out again today. Uh, how important it is, and how it's important, it's been for you and your own uh, leadership.
1: In, in a podcast like this, I listen to a lot of podcasts, right? And so it's like I just, I just like listening to how people approach problems and situations and. You know, probably more than half the time, I don't agree with it, but it's like I'm I'm still taking it in, right? I'm still taking it how they think about it and how they
0: go about it. Absolutely. That's part of the leadership and learning experience, right? Disagreeing and, and, but grabbing maybe some nuggets out of the disagreement even. Well, again, my guest has been Thomas Bozo. He is the CEO of Homeboy Industries. Thomas, so if people want to find out a little bit more about you, find out more about your book that's coming out in a couple of weeks or more about Homeboy Industries, where would you send them?
1: Yes, two, two places. So uh, for the, my book, it's on Amazon. So go to Amazon. It's, it's the Homeboy Way, Thomas Bozo. And all the proceeds of that book go to, go to Homeboy. So it's I'm not self-promoting me, I'm promoting Homeboy because what I want is people to see that there's a different way of helping folks in our society. And hopefully that spurs them into action. Uh, otherwise, we're a nonprofit organization that, help, that we need donors. And so we have a fairly sizable amount of content on our website, homeboyindustries.org. And uh, we have a pretty good Facebook following. A lot of what makes uh, our clients kind of move from their pain to transform their life is them telling their stories. And so there's a lot of great stories being told in my book and also on the website along the way. And the more people we can get part of, the homeboy family, the better off I think everybody's going to be.
0: Well, good, Thomas. Thanks so much for sharing your insights today. It's been a fascinating conversation. I do encourage people, check out Homeboy Industries. If you've not heard about them, check out this book. Anything that we can do to continue to support great organizations like your own, but also just for us to grow as leaders. So important, right? For all the different leaders out there that are listening, your role is so critical. So thanks again, Thomas, for sharing your experience because I know it's going to impact all of us. Thanks for your time today. Thank Thank you, Rob.